Lower back pain is the second most common reason people visit their physicians. It's also the world's leading cause of disability. Millions of people suffer from back pain. Many of them lose time at work, at school, just name your favorite place. Many will be prescribed opioid painkillers, and some will become dependent on them. In the United States alone, back pain accounts for more than 100 million annual lost workdays and 100 billion in treatment costs. That's a large number. That's as much as we spend fighting cancer. 80% of us experience back pain at some point in our lives. From diagnosis to treatment, it remains a vexing problem for physicians. Today, we're joined by Bill Maris, the Executive Director and Scientific Director of the Spine Research Institute in Ohio State's College of Engineering. He'll share with us his lived experience where researchers and practitioners from divergent fields apply their collective knowledge to solve what seems like an unsolvable problem. Welcome, I'm Ayana Howard, Dean of Engineering at The Ohio State University, and this is Ingenuity. Maris is the Honda Chair Professor in the Department of Integrated Systems Engineering at The Ohio State University. He's a National Academy of Engineering member and well-known researcher in the area of biomechanics and his role in the prevention, evaluation, and treatment of spine disorders. He leads the Spine Research Institute, which is a unique group of multidisciplinary experts and facilities. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dean Harder. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, systems engineering professor. Now, a lot of people probably don't even know what that means. And so my question is, is how did a systems engineering professor find himself researching back pain? Well, that's a great question, Dean Howard. It really started uh, when, I, when I began college. I went to uh, undergraduate college as a, on a basketball scholarship. And, um, you know, as a, an athlete, um, I suffered, you know, lots of musculoskeletal disorders, as everybody does, as well as some musculoskeletal, as well as some uh, low back disorders. Uh, so, you know, I had excruciating pain a couple times after a couple encounters. And, um, and I was one of the few people on the basketball team who was an engineer. So I was studying systems engineering, and systems engineering is all about describing any kind of a system, whether it's a thermal system, a mechanical system, electrical system, or whatever. And, you know, I wanted to understand a little more about how I got hurt. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if I could apply what I learned academically to what happens athletically? So um, that's why I, I tried to marry those two interests of mine. And then uh, after I got my undergraduate degree, I went to graduate school, and I wanted something that mixed humans as well as engineering. And so that brought me to um, industrial and uh, in systems engineering as well as uh, bioengineering. I got my master's in industrial engineering and my PhD in bioengineering. And as I was doing my dissertation, I was very interested in how to account for dynamics and what happens to the body when things are in dynamic motion as opposed to statics. 
And uh, so I came up with a dissertation idea and I took that to my advisor. And he said, Bill, that's a great idea. I said, you could do that. But if you apply this to the spine, you'll have something to do for the rest of your life. And guess what? That's what I've been doing. <laughs> so I love this story of, you know, you took your passion, which was basketball, and you combined and converted it to an engineering career. And this mixing of humans and engineering, I, I don't think most people know that engineering does mix with people. I mean, it's not just about gadgets. And so if you think about this, uh, this mixing of humans and engineering, you know, we have achieved incredible progress in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes, among other highly prevailing conditions. So why is back pain a different story? Well, um, it, it's very complex. You know, if you look at the spine, it's, it's an amazingly complex system. We have, you know, if you look at just what, how the spine is designed, it has 24 discs, 26 vertebrae, over 200 muscles, uh, well over 350 joints, and they all work together in unison, along with all the supporting structures and the muscles and the, you know, everything else going on in the human body. And, you know, if you look at um, other diseases, for example, you look at things like, um, you know, diabetes, um, they have very quantitative ways to assess what's going on with diabetes. So, you know, you can measure someone's A1C levels in their blood or their sugar levels, and you have a quantitative metric to tell you what's going on. And then for things like cardiovascular disease, uh, you will have, you know, lipid profiles. And again, very quantitative, you can tell what's going on. And if you look at low back pain, there's nothing like that. So the top three health problems in the United States are, you know, where money is spent anyway, is diabetes, heart disease, and, and low back pain. Yet with those former two diabetes and heart disease, you have very quantitative metrics and they've come a long way over the years. But with low back pain, when you have low back pain and you go to your physician, they'll simply ask you things like, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how bad do you hurt? And that's their metric, which could be all over the place. Because if you have a, a bad encounter that day, if you know, you're having a bad day or somebody cuts you off in traffic, you may rate your pain as a two, uh, or let's say a seven, where if you're having a good day, you may rate, rate it as a two. And so what engineering allows you to do is take the subjectivity out of it and try to put quantitative metrics on there that help us quantify what's going on. That's what engineering does. And, you know, a long time ago, uh, Lord Kelvin said something like, when you can measure something, you know something about it. And when you can't measure it, your knowledge is of a weak and meager uh, type. And so what we're trying to do is put quantitative metrics on what's happening with back pain and use it as a tool to help improve treatment as well as prevention. And so obviously, you know, some of our listeners are, they may be doctors, clinicians, maybe they're patients themselves. And, you know, there are thousands of, of individuals out there, physicians and clinicians, that are focused on back pain and patients who might be suffering. And, you know, many of us have had bad days. And, yeah, I would say that, you know, that bad sleep, we just say, oh, yeah, it was just bad sleep. And so if I think about this, what is it about, you know, this, the things that you're doing at the Spine Research Institute and the approaches that could lead to real progress in diagnosis and treatment? So, um it goes back to that systems view of the world. You know, I started out as pretty much a biomechanical engineer, right? And so I thought, okay, I could solve all the world's problems with back pain just by looking at what people are exposed to physically. And I soon learned that it was more complex than that. 
And so over the years, we have learned that musculoskeletal disorders and spine disorders in particular are what we call biopsychosocial problems. So that means, yes, there are biomechanical factors involved, there are biological factors such as you know, biochemical uh, regulation going on, but there's also psychological overlays and there's psychosocial overlays and things like that. And we've learned that it's, it's really, really complex and all these different dimensions roll into it to define your particular experience. So, you know, one of the monikers we hear here at Ohio State is, you know, there's no routine cancer. Well, we believe at the Spine Research Institute that there's no routine back injury. Everybody's unique. So your back pain may be very different from my back pain because of our uniqueness. Uh, so we have to understand this, uh, these differences among people. And, you know, it, you know and, and another thing we've noticed over the years is if you just look at the statistics, they're amazing. You know, everybody gets an MRI or a CT or a CAT scan and everybody thinks, okay, I can see what's going on. But you know, you get those imaging um, metrics when you're laying down on a table in an MRI machine and you don't hurt when you don't move. <laughs> and so, you know, that can only go so far in telling us what's going on and it doesn't tell us anything about this system. And so what we've decided over the, and as a matter of fact, if you look at the effectiveness of those um, diagnostics, only 15% of imaging tell you anything about what's going on. So there's a lot that's unexplained just by looking at the physical body. Um, so that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to bring this holistic approach to understanding what's going on with people. We're develop, developing systems that look at how people move. We have a lot of wearables that we have developed. We're looking at how people feel about their pain. We're looking at things like you mentioned, sleep and anxiety, depression, all that stuff plays a role. We're mixing that together with you know, uh, how people are thinking about their recovery, how people think about their pain. And we know it's very time dependent also because the longer you have the pain, the less likely you are to, to heal from it and, uh, very quickly. And so it's really important to get the right treatment to the right person as fast as you can. Uh, because what we've learned over the years is, um, you know, everything's trial and error. You know, the way um, physicians treat this now is they'll try some very conservative approaches. If that doesn't work, they'll you know, give you injections. If that doesn't work, they'll try some other therapies, you know, physical therapy as well as medicinal therapies. And at the end of that is our surgeries, which are very unforgiving. And, you know, you can't undo a lot of surgeries. <laughs> And so what we're trying to do is say, okay, given who you are, what is the best treatment for you at this point in your, in your experience? So a holistic approach, personalized, so that you're not doing the trial and error. And I, I, this, I appreciate this fact where you said this, this psychological aspect. And, and we know my pain is not your pain. And a lot of times I think physicians don't, and even spouses might not realize that, you know, pain is felt differently and thought about differently in different individuals and in different groups. And the fact is you're looking at the data that supports this. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about, about the data. You know, I'm a data devotee and I, I'm immersed in artificial intelligence, which is driven a lot by the data. And so if I think about data, I think about data analytics and machine learning and AI, what elements of these methods are you employing in your own research and what does this mean for the future? Yeah, so um, as, as you well know, the key to 
having useful AI and machine learning is just collect gobs of data. <laughs> you know, uh, there's if, if you have a lot, and I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in your database, then you could find trends. But those are you know, what some people call black box trends, right? We really don't know the hows and the whys, but it does give us a clue as to what's going on. What kind, where should we look? You know, with all, especially with this biopsychosocial approach, there's so many different areas that could interact that we haven't even thought about. And I could give you some examples of this. But, you know, we don't know even what rock to look under, right? And so that's what the AI and the machine learning does for us. And then once we look under those rocks, our question is, okay, mechanistically, how does that work? And so that's when we apply our laboratory techniques to understand what's happening in the body, what reacts, you know, what muscles react, what forces are imposed in the tissues, how do biochemicals upregulate or downregulate. We're trying to understand that whole sequence of events that occurs, and that's when we could start to model things, you know, mathematically. And I call modeling the glue that holds our logic together, and that's kind of the end point for us. Once you understand how it works, then you could do something about it. And what I mean by that is you could either uh, help prevent it by understanding the conditions under which these problems occur, or you could work with the physicians to help develop clinical uh, assessments that help them understand what's going on and how to treat it. So one of the things that, um, you know, I had the pleasure of, of talking to you a little bit before and, you know, linking about gobs of data, and I remember one of the comments I'd said is, you know, well, how do you think about the fact that people are diverse? And you actually showed me and gave me a little peek into your data. Um, of course, you know, I was, I had to sign an NDA, so, um, but when I think about your concern and you're thinking about the different populations, how do you uh, address this? I know you work with veterans, and, and can you talk a little bit about the, the data sets? Yeah, so the data sets are expansive. Uh, so first off, um, you know, the two dimensions to this, it's who we work with and what we, what we measure. So who we work with is expansive. So we work with, you know, we're part of an NIH consortium and we work with about a, a dozen different um, academic medical institutions across the country and they're all using our technology, which helps us build our database. Um, and, you know, we also have about five or six different military installations that are using our material. Uh, we're also doing a lot of work here at, Ohio, at the Ohio State University and collecting as much data as we can here. And we pretty much welcome all comers. We try and collect as much data as we possibly can. And with that diversity across the country and different regions of the country, we're hoping to get a heterogeneous uh, mix of people of all, all shapes and colors and sizes. And we're trying to make sure that it applies to everybody. That's really our goal. So, so that's one of the things we do. The other thing we do is try and collect data that nobody's ever put together before. So, you know, yes, we collect all this biomechanical data on how people move, but we also have in our, in our platform where all this data is, is collected, we have about 80 different metrics of um, patient-reported outcomes. So we give people, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? What's your anxiety level? What's your sleep level? All that kind of stuff. So we collect that all. Uh, we mix it. We can mix it if we have it with imaging through CT and MRI. We can mix it with uh, patient with uh, patient medical records, uh, and of course, all this is done under you know IRB control and things like that. Uh, but that gives us a huge data set, and it allows allows us to really 
uh, parse through this data set and see you know, what's popping up, what's important that we've never looked at before. And I could give you an example of how this, how we went down this track, if you like. Um, this all started as, as a, you know, I was part of a National Academy of Sciences study of looking at musculoskeletal disorders in the workplace years ago. And this is a congressionally mandated study. And what they wanted to know is what's the work-relatedness of musculoskeletal disorders, right? And, you know, so as a biomechanical engineer, I thought I knew all the answers, of course. You know, we thought it was all physical. But when we looked at the data as part of the study group, we saw that there's, yes, there's a pile of data that suggests that it's all mechanical. There's also a pile of data that suggests it's all psychosocial. And, you know, and there's also some data that suggests it deals with individual factors like personalities and things like that. And of course, we all said, well, how could that be, right? And, you know, it must just be over-reporting or whatever uh, on, in these other, let's call them silos of information. But there were a lot of data there. And so this incentivized me to do a study where it, it was a very <laughs> intriguing study. What we did is we tried to see whether there's any link between the psychosocial aspects of what a person's thinking and the biomechanics. So we set up the study where my graduate student was testing people using all our technology. We were trying to understand what the forces are like in the spine. And we can measure that with you know, electrodes and force plates, things like that. And so um, we also partnered with uh, somebody who's an expert in psychosocial, uh, uh, the uh, psychosocial field. And so this uh, professor coached my graduate student how to be very accommodating and nice. And you do things like look people in the eye and you smile and you make small talk and you whistle and you turn on the radio. And, and so we ran this experiment, had all these very basic lifting conditions, tried to see what the loads are in the spine. And then halfway through the study, I would walk in the room and I'd disrupt the study. And so what I started doing is yelling at my graduate student. And I told my graduate student, you know, what are you doing? You don't, you're not supposed to do it this way, you're supposed to do it that way. You know, I can't believe you, you haven't listened to me all these times. And I just started unloading on my graduate student. So, and of course, this is all faked. We pretended we had this very large argument right in front of the subject, and we walked out of the room, slammed the door, pretended to have this big argument outside the room, and the subject was left there for five minutes to just think about things. Then my graduate student walks back in the room, turns off the music, stops smiling, stops making eye contact, turns off all the positive cues and started uh, portraying negative cues. So they were, and all he said is, we gotta do this again. And that's all he said, and they went through the same exact experiment again. And guess what? With some of the subjects, the loads were significantly higher on the spine, so the forces were much, much greater, up to 35% you know, greater on uh, doing the exact same task. And when we looked through the data, we found that some of this, and this seemed to occur with people of certain personality types, like introverts, responded very strongly. Extroverts couldn't care less. You know, they, they performed exactly the same. And so this sort of gave us a clue that, you know, the mind and body are indeed connected and what you're thinking and how you're thinking about the world has an influence on how the forces are imposed on the tissue, which is the beginning of the wear and tear on the tissue and the beginning of pain. So this is fascinating. And, and one of the things that I'm getting from this is we as people are all connected. How I feel 
may actually impact how you feel about yourself, which is fascinating. Um, I, there was one thing that you said that kind of made me chuckle. You had said, we had to train the engineers how to be nice and accommodating. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, but it worked, it which sure is did. interesting. So speaking of, you know, we talked about mixing data and collecting data that hasn't been collected before. So I want to really briefly talk a little bit about uh, another set of data that deals with chronic back pain. And as we know, chronic back pain has contributed to another healthcare and societal challenge, that of opioid addiction. So how has your team's work helped tackle this problem that impacts so many families? Yeah, uh, Dean Howard, you're exactly right. That's a huge problem. As a matter of fact, if you look at what's happened with opioid deaths just last year, I think there was something like 93,000 uh, deaths attributed to opioids last year, which is, is, is terrible. And uh, the, the research we're doing now, which is funded through NIH, is part of a group called Backpack, which is trying to assess what's happening with, with back pain. However, uh, one of the leading two reasons that people take opioids is back pain. Uh, you know, the first one is cancer, the second one is, is back pain. And so there's a larger initiative called HEAL, and uh, HEAL, uh, stands for helping to end addiction long term and that's an NIH program and a, and a subset of that is this backpack that I'm talking about which is a consortium across the United States and as part of this huge data set that we're trying to you know utilize that I just described uh, we're trying to see exactly what people are taking how long they've been on the opioids um, if they're on it for more than a certain period of time does it lead to uh, dependencies things like that. So we're, we're considering all that. We don't have answers right now, but we're, that's one of our primary objectives is to understand the role that these opioids really play and, and you know, leading to those kinds of disorders. You know, engineers love our acronyms, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> so uh, I mentioned earlier about back pain and it being a major contributor to lost work days. Can your approach and this, you know, this holistic approach, thinking about the data, can it help organizations and companies prevent back injuries among their own workforce? I mean, not only improving health of their employees, but maybe also their bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. I firmly believe that. You know, a lot of what we do in terms of applying our data is, uh, lives in the ergonomics world, where you're trying to design workplaces to minimize the risk, because the best way to treat back pain is to never have it in the first place. And so, if you look at, you know, a lot of our funding over the years has come from the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation, and we've been able to, you know, develop guidelines for them. If you, you know, you look at their website, that we have some common websites with them and us that show exactly, you know, what, you know, what's the, what's the best way to limit what people lift and how they lift, what's the difference between lifting one-handed versus two-handed, what happens when you push versus pull, what should you do when you return people to the workplace? I mean, we've got a lot of, a lot of information there. And if you look at the trends that have occurred in the state data over the years, it's, it's gone in a very positive direction. So of course you can't say this is directly attributable to our work, but certainly the anecdotal evidence is there. It seemed to coincide with when we we're producing this information and people are applying it. So there's one example. Another example is the work we've done with, with industry. Um, We've worked with uh, hundreds of industries over the years, and 
The problem is most of these industries don't let us report their data. <laughs> but there was an article in Forbes magazine a couple years ago that talked about our relationship with Honda. Uh, and, um, and one of the things, we worked with Honda for about five years and you know, helped them um, redesign some of their work. And over those five years, their musculoskeletal injuries, in particular their back injuries, were reduced by over 70% not only here in Ohio, but all over America, all over North America. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of data that suggests that what we are doing does have an impact and we can't control this. You don't have to live with the back problems. And the more we learn about it, the better job we're doing. So our goal here when we're learning about the, how everybody's different is not to say you can do this job, you cannot do that job. It's really to understand how the system works and to design work properly so you don't get these injuries in the first place. What are you learning about the use of exoskeletons? Those are a very hot topic right now. We've done about a dozen or so different research studies on exoskeletons. And, you know, everybody's sort of gravitating towards them in industry because, you know, it's a new shiny object, right? So everybody's saying, oh, this is cool. I don't have to worry about hurting my back. I'll just wear this. But what we're learning is there's a lot of trade-offs associated with that because as with everything else in the spine, it's a systems problem, right? And so an exoskeleton, for those who don't know, is this uh, basically support structure that you wear outside your body, and, it, and the idea is it's supposed to take part of the load so it doesn't pass through your joints and your tissues. However, we're finding that in some situations, these exoskeletons can be beneficial. Um, they could actually uh, reduce some of the load on your back, and I should also say that We've yet to find that they reduce a lot of load on your back. Usually it's, it's fairly minor. Um, yet in other situations, uh, they could actually hurt. So, you know, we've done several studies that have shown, for example, if you're lifting in one situation, like right in front of you, and you're not doing a lot of twisting and bending, they actually provide some assistance and they help and they unload the spine somewhat. However, if you lift in a slightly different situation, like turning to the side and lifting up and then twisting and moving in front of you, um, they actually increase the load on their spine. And the reason for that is it's almost like dancing with a really bad partner. So if the partner knows how you're moving, you know, they move with you and you don't fight it. But if you are dancing with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, in this case the exoskeleton, and you're moving to the side and it's not designed to move easily in those, let's say, off planes of the body, you'll fight it. And that will recruit more of the muscles in your, in your spine and that'll result in more loading or more forces occurring up and down the spine. So it's a mixed bag. You know, and one of the things that scares me in industry is when people simply take an exoskeleton and gives it to a worker and says, okay, go do your job. I don't care what the job is, use it on everything. And what that means, based on what we've discovered, is in some situations it'll help, some situations it'll be worse, which means you know you eventually have problems. Uh, if you're going to use exoskeletons, our recommendation, based on what we found, is you need to understand what the job entails, and you need to employ them with some intelligence. You know, use them where they're designed to be used, and don't use them where they're not. So it takes some supervision. And you know, and this is you know, there are two types of exoskeletons. There are passive exoskeletons which don't contain motors, and then there are active ones that do have motors in them. And my comments are all really uh, relate to the active ones. Since I'm sorry, the passive ones, since those are the ones that we've looked at 
traditionally, and those are the ones that, uh, that seem to work good in some situations, not in others. If you look at the active exoskeletons, you know, those are used not only for work, but they're also used with people and, you know, who are trying to rehabilitate. And, you know, we don't have enough data on those yet to understand whether they're beneficial or not or if they have the same problems. So back pain, opioid crisis, workplace injuries, what is it that you can't solve with ingenuity? So I like to say that interesting solutions happen at the intersection of disciplines. The work being done at the Spine Research Institute is an excellent example of this. I'm looking forward to exploring even more of these fascinating collaborations between Ohio State engineers and healthcare professionals. If you like what you heard and are interested in learning more or suggesting your own topics for the podcast, be sure to connect with us on Twitter or Facebook at OSU Engineering. Thanks for listening.